Recovery Elevator, episode 448. I think that's one of the key things that I've really fallen comfortably into, but it wasn't easy at first. It's, yeah, being willing, mindful, open to just really understanding, like, what do you need in this moment? And it's definitely not a drink. I'm excited to announce our newest course, Ditching the Booze, Writing a New Narrative. This five-week course helps you explore your sobriety story through journaling and writing prompts. When we drink, it's so easy to get caught up in the roller coaster of thoughts, feelings, and emotions running through our minds. Writing helps to get out of your head, unpack those old narratives, leave them on the page, and begin a new story. Whether you're on day one or 1,000, this course will help you explore the creative process of writing, reflect on, and unpack your sobriety story in a safe place and establish a journaling practice to carry you forward on this sobriety journey. Course starts Monday, October 2nd at 7.30 p.m. Eastern and runs for five weeks. This course is for Cafe RE members only, and there's a link in the show notes to join Cafe RE. Thank you, Robin. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm glad that you're here with us today. On today's show, we have Jen. She's 48 from Boulder, Colorado, and had her last drink on May 12th of 2021. Nice job, Jen. A quick shout out to our chat host over in Cafe RE. You're making a huge difference to the people in our community, and we appreciate you. Thank you. Before we get into the intro, let's hear from our sponsor, Soberlink. Did you know there are 15 million people in the United States with an alcohol use disorder? And yet, there's still a stigma that surrounds addiction and recovery. We need to stop being ashamed and start sharing in our sobriety. That's why we're so excited to have a sponsor like Soberlink who shares in our beliefs. If you haven't heard of Soberlink Alcohol Monitoring System, it's the perfect accountability tool for those in recovery. It can help you rebuild trust and get back on track despite slips or relapses. We've teamed up with Soberlink to provide you with tips for handling a relapse, which is a guide that can be downloaded at www.soberlink.com forward slash recovery elevator. On that page, you'll also find a form to sign up for a $50 off promo code for you or a loved one who is ready to take the next steps in their recovery journey. Before we start this intro, I just want to acknowledge that today's topic takes me to a very specific place. This is an area that I've done a lot of work on, and I continue to do a lot of work on today. I'm speaking not as an expert, but just as someone who's still trying to figure this out for myself. If the ideas that I present don't ring true with you, that's okay. Keep looking and stay open. There is a story out there that will speak to you. All right, let's get into it. Like Paul mentioned last week, we're going to be covering some listener questions for the next few weeks. Today's question comes from Dale in Virginia, and he wants to know, how do I learn to let go of things and stop trying to control? Great question, Dale. Thanks for your submission. There's some common themes that come up over and over again in recovery. Surrender and acceptance are two of those, and if we look at Dale's question, both make an appearance. How do I learn to let go, surrender, and stop trying to control, acceptance? There are lots of things that we can try to control. What tortilla chips we use, how people drive in traffic, 
which method our coworkers use to accomplish a task, or how our family does chores. I think most of us can relate to some version of these. Some of this is normal. We're humans and we have lived experience, and it makes sense that I prefer the chips that I do because I know they'll stand up to a healthy scoop of salsa. Of course I want people to drive safely so we all get to our destination. And I want Steve from work to use the whoozy whatsy method, not the howdy duty technique, because it's faster and more accurate. And kids, yes, please do the gutters, then do the raking. That way you can rake what you clean out of the gutter. In these examples, I'd say those are healthy motivations. We don't always get our way, but the reason that we want things a certain way makes sense. There is another type of control that I continue to work on, and one that's a little less fun to joke around about. Where there's a will, there's a way, though, and I'm sure I'll try to sneak one stupid joke in. Have you ever tried to control the way that someone loves you? How they show you respect, and how they feel about you? I have, and it's not always that great. I've micromanaged aspects of professional and personal relationships. I've become overly upset when people don't meet my expectations, and I've inserted myself and overperformed to make sure that things go exactly how I think they need to go. Sometimes this can show up as people-pleasing, and I've said it on this podcast before, but for me, people-pleasing isn't about making sure the other person is happy, but making sure that they're happy with me. There's a big distinction there. That bears the question, what's the motivation between this type of control When my wife and I are in a disagreement, why do I feel such a strong urge to make her see it my way and to try to get her to respond to the way that I want her to? Why will I exhaust myself to make sure everything goes perfect? When my expectations aren't met, why do I feel it so deeply? I've learned that a lot of these deeper feelings of control come from a misguided view of how I think love is displayed. I've had transactional relationships in the past. Ones where I was told that my actions were directly proportional to how much I love someone. And wouldn't you know it, that's one of those fun things that I've carried with me into adulthood and that I get to deal with today. Jackpot. Seriously though, it's not always great, but I am grateful that I'm in a place today where I have the ability to dig into this stuff. It's a blessing to not have to allow these feelings have control over my actions. So anyway, transactional relationships. What the hell does this have to do with Dale's question? When I'm trying to control things, like really trying to control things, trying in a way that it becomes a problem, it generally has to do with how I think someone's actions are tied to how they feel about me. If I think that them doing something that I don't want is a statement about how they feel about me, it's going to devastate me. Out of emotional survival, I've gone to great lengths to make sure that things are in alignment with my wishes. When I can understand the why behind my desire for control, it opens up the door for releasing that. My desire for control is rooted in knowing that I'm loved, that I'm valued, that I'm respected. If I'm controlling every aspect of something, then I'm going to get the outcomes that I want, and I'm assuring myself that I'm going to get the feedback that I need. If that means I have to manipulate those around me or do it by myself, then so be it. So what do I do with this? How do I make the change? What does that change look like? The first thing that I've had to do is to be aware of my control. My preferred method of self-discovery is by doing a quick daily inventory each night, but sometimes I get lucky enough that someone points it out to me 
Thanks to my beautiful wife, Amy, for doing that on a somewhat regular basis. I need it. Once I'm aware that this controlling mindset has shown itself, I try to ask myself questions. What if things don't go my way? How would that play out? What does that say about me? What's the other person's perspective? What if there was some sort of failure? Be curious about all aspects of the situation. Don't focus so much on the actions themselves, but the motivation behind the actions, and keep asking why. If I find that this is a situation where I'm seeking that love or validation through someone else's actions, this is an opportunity to bring in some affirmations or truths into the front of my mind. I am loved. I am enough. I have value. My worth is not determined by this single project or interaction. I will continue to grow. I will continue to show others patience, love, and tolerance. When I can start to separate someone's actions with how they feel about me, my load becomes much lighter. And when I can separate my worth from how others feel about me, when I can stand on my own and know who I am without validation, I'm free. Having the freedom of loving myself allows me to flow with these ideas in a much more peaceful way. This opens up another question though. How do we love and accept ourselves? I'm grateful for my relationship with God. I find peace through the grace and love that's shown to me, and I try to live a life that shows His love to others. Even if you don't share my faith, I think that we can all find purpose and peace in serving the greater good. Loving the people that we share this planet with has a weird way of filling our hearts. There's a lot of ways a person could go with answering Dale's question, and like I said before I started, this is just where my mind went. When I have unrest on the inside, it presents itself on the outside. When I find that inner peace, I can extend that to the world around me too. That doesn't mean that I never have an opinion. That doesn't mean that I never get bothered by other people's reactions. These things happen all the time. The difference today is that I'm actively looking at how I interact with the world around me. With the help of friends and mentors, I'm able to check those interactions and again, try to work towards a greater good. Stick around after the interview and I'll share a quick story of our family trip to Winnipeg last month. It's a great example of how control nearly burned me out and how my perceptions were misinforming me. Before we get to the interview with Jen, let's hear from our sponsor, BetterHelp. In sobriety, one of the things that we start healing is the relationship we have with our sleep. However, even though we feel physically better due to not drinking, we may still be struggling with racing thoughts and anxiety as we are trying to unwind and fall asleep. Have you ever gotten to bed in early only to get up to write things down as your mind is racing and you don't want to forget all of your to-dos for the next day? I notice that when I incorporate therapy into my week, I can give a place to all of my thoughts and work through them during my session, allowing myself to take things one at a time. And I just find more peace that way, more peace of mind. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Elevator. Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Jen to the show. Jen, how are you doing today? 
Hey, I'm doing well. How are you, Chris? I'm doing great. It's really good to see you. I'm excited for this time that we get to spend together and to hear a little bit more of your story. But before we do that, can you let listeners know how long you've been sober? A little over two years. My last drink was on May 12th, 2021. And we're in July now. Nice. Just over two years. Uh, did you do anything to celebrate your two year? Yeah, it's uh, it's actually the day after my birthday. And it also is Mother's Day weekend. So I took myself for a massage. I got my nails done, went to a yoga class, just kind of had a kind of treat day to myself. Well, self-care. I like that. Very cool. <laughs> well, how, how are you feeling with two years in? Good, good. You know, it's like definitely won't sugarcoat. I mean, I, there's still hard days, not necessarily alcohol related, but just life throws stuff at you. And I even went through a little funk lately. Um, but it's just awesome to see how I can, you know, I have the tools to pull out of that funk and understand when I'm, you know, needing something healthy to cope rather than alcohol. So overall, just way better than two years ago. It's nice to be able to recognize that, right? It's one of the one of the gifts that we have. Yeah. Before we get into your story, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, where you're from, what you do for a living, age, are you married, uh, things like that. And then most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Yep. Uh, I live in the Boulder, Colorado area. I'm an architect. I'm married. We have two kids, 14 and 11, a dog. Um, and for fun, I'd say primarily it's being active a lot outdoors a lot of hiking running um, going for walks with friends particularly dear friends that live nearby in recovery and uh, yoga rock climbing a lot of in gym um, sometimes once in a while outside and a ton of yoga and then also like knitting and crocheting once in a great while things like that i'm always jealous of uh like our colorado like my colorado friends and our colorado interviewees of like the ability like the amount of things that you guys have to do outdoors. Very envious. I feel pretty grateful living here. It's part of why I moved here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes sense. All right, Jan, let's dig into this. Uh, let's do what we came here to do. And let's hear a little bit about your journey with alcohol. Um, and I'll leave it up to you. Why don't, why don't you start with where wherever you think it's appropriate? Uh, let's dig in. Sure. Yeah, I kind of, you know, went through it last night by myself and sort of found different phases. And my journey was a really slow start. Unlike a lot of people, I did not drink in high school um, and not even until I was 21, really. Um, and it was two parts. Part of it, as I grew up, maybe in like the junior high, high school time, I had learned that my dad didn't drink because he couldn't control it. And I'd also learned that his mom, my grandma also um, had stopped drinking because she couldn't control it. So at a pretty young but aware age, I knew that something was up in the family and I didn't want that to happen to me. So I took it really slow, maybe had two drinks two to like at different times in high school, never got drunk. Um, 21st birthday was the first time I legitimately drank. And, and I would say, you know, the, the phases kind of start with an undergrad, I would, I started to drink a little more with friends once I was of legal age. Um, but I would still even at a party, maybe have one or two most of the time. And if a friend were to be like, Oh, have another do the shot, I'd be like, No, nah, this thing's up with my dad, I don't want that to happen to me. And over and over again, friends would tell me like, Oh, you're, you're not like him, you're fine. And 
over time, I stopped listening to that inner voice and started listening to them and believing them. And so I did have some pretty good party nights in undergrad. Again, it wasn't like concerning drinking, nothing out of control, and it wasn't frequent, but definitely a few hangovers in undergrad. Um, grad school, we made some friends and there was a little bit more partying, a little bit more binge drinking, a little more regularly. Um, I remember having hangovers a little bit more often. Again, it was pretty rare. I remember only once in, a, in grad school where I drank alone when my husband and our friends were all out of town and I was just chilling at home doing some insisting sipping wine along the way. And then there was kind of that dink period, you know, dual income, no kids after grad school before kids. <laughs> um, still, it was like a relatively fine time to be drinking. You know, I partied up with friends. We lived in LA at the time. So it was super fun, you know, drinking on the beach in Venice or going dancing with friends in West LA or Hollywood. And and still it was like, I maybe felt hungover every six months. I mean, it would really stand out when I had a hangover. We almost never had alcohol in the house, never drank alone. And, you know, I have to work to not feel shame with what I'm about to say, but it really wasn't until parenthood that I started drinking heavily. And, you know, I really prided myself. I had really awesome architectural jobs, working on amazing buildings, working with really cool people. And when my first was a baby, I went back to work and was realizing how little time I had with him at home. And I wanted to be at home with him. I had a long commute. So I did the stay at home mom thing for a while when he was about seven months old and we were on one income. So I was trying to save money. It was the first time I bought boxed wine. And, and so boxed wine, you know, one of the bad things about it is that you can just keep splashing a little bit more in your glass and you don't see the bottle going down and how much you're really drinking. And I was at home alone, uh, you know, for the most part, uh, and could start sipping at four o'clock while I made dinner. And, um, and so I, I feel like that was the very first time where my drinking went from normal to on the slipperier slope. And, and then also I found that, you know, I went into parenthood with this false perception of like, I'm not gonna let parenthood change me. I'm going to hold on to the young, you know, like the old gen. And so somehow I, my mind convinced itself that, you know, if I, if I kept drinking, like even at home, like it, like made it more fun, I wouldn't be boring. You know, I'd still be like the fun mom. And, and uh, so it still wasn't out of control at that time, but looking back, I'm like, yeah, that wasn't healthy. <laughs> and, but yeah, it's, it, so it kind of helped me feel less bored and feel like I was holding on to the old self, which, you know, wasn't correct. And then um, that was in California. But then when my youngest was a baby and my oldest was a toddler, we moved to Colorado, which is where we're at now. And Colorado has like a whole, you know, family-friendly brewery scene. And we quickly fell into a group with um, a bunch of families that we were friends with. And the two th main things we had in common was we all had kids around the same young ages and we all liked to drink. And so it was really easy to be like, hey, who wants to meet at the brewery on this beautiful afternoon? Let the kids run free. And we sip and socialize. And at that time, the kids are oblivious to what's going on. They're just having fun digging in the sand or throwing a ball. <laughs> and so it felt great. It was fun at that time. But you know, again, when I stopped drinking, look back on that time, I can see I wasn't present, you know, as a parent, the way you, you really want to be ideally. Um, and so having that kind of party scene with a bunch of parent friends, it just kind of kept shoring up the problem drinking a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And throughout time, I 
slowly started finding myself, you know, coming home after like a party night with friends and my husband would go to bed and I didn't want to stop drinking. So I'd sit on the couch and have a few more before I went to bed. And, you know, fast forward that many years, you know, it started to become a habit and, and that became my like alone time to decompress. And so it became pretty regular system in our house. Like the kids would be in bed, my husband would go to bed, I'd stay up to quote unquote, read for a while or whatever it was, but really it was just to get blackout drunk. And I started, I mean, more often than not, I would be passed out on the couch and that's how I would fall asleep. Um, It became a pretty regular thing to fall asleep in my clothes rather than being, you know, brushed teeth with pajamas on in bed. And, and so that's, that's kind of the progression of it. I just want to comment like on that, um, you know, you mentioned that time, that time that we had that you had to yourself, man, that, that resonates with me. That was for me, like one, I just wanted to keep my drinking going. I wanted to keep that. I wanted to keep that alive. I wanted to consume more and become just like, I just wanted to get more drunk. That's what I, that's what I was doing. But there's a, another part of that, that I didn't realize until, until later in my sobriety. Cause even though I wasn't drinking, I was still mimicking that behavior of like staying up late. And part of what that was for me was, was wanting to have control over like a portion of my life. Like I was also kind of punishing myself because I would always like stay up late and just do, I was doing mindless things. Like I wasn't drinking alcohol. I was chugging LaCroix, but I'm like watching Seinfeld, which I've seen 15 times. Like I, I don't need to know what Jerry's up to this week because, because I know, but like, why am I staying up late? But it was part of it. It was, it was just feeling like this is mine. I've got control over this moment, this little chunk of my life. And like, even without the alcohol, that's something that I've kind of battled with. Do you, I, I don't know. Do you feel like that was part of it for you too? Cause you know, you mentioned, and I like, I don't think you're alone there, Jen, that, that substance abuse or, 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 or usage can, can increase like after a drastic change in our life. And like, I get it. It's, it's like, shit, should it change after we have kids? But like, that's, I mean, it's a big change. It's a, it's a big shift, but. Yeah, I don't know. Do you think that was part of it for you as well? That that just wanting to have control, feel like you had control of something, like you, some, like there was a part of you that wasn't giving of yourself and taking for you. Yeah, partly. I think control is a huge part of so many people's drinking. So yeah, yeah, I think that that was a part of it for sure. Control and escape. I think from emotions that I didn't want to feel. So it was. It, I think it was a combo of those two. But yeah, definitely a control of my day having space to myself. And it was interesting because my husband, and I've always been really good at giving each other space. Like you want to go exercise. You want to go hang out with a friend. You just need to decompress. Sure. Go for it. I got the kids and we're really good at taking turns with that. So even though that was built into my life, I still felt like I needed that extra alone time. And now in my healthy, sober state, like I recognize it and I can speak up for it in a different way and I can do more healthy things with that. But I'll admit even two plus years sober, I still will sometimes stay up unhealthily late, like scrolling on (laughs) social media as much as I've tried to stop social media once in a while. Like I'll get onto like the, I just want to go check in on RE. I try not to be on regular Facebook and I'll accidentally find myself in the Facebook world. And it's really frustrating that, um, but I think a part of it's also just escaping. Um, And that's, you know, that's definitely become a very key like red flag for me when my mind and body want to start 
escaping in any way, even if it's like excessively going to yoga, it's still escaping something. And emotional sobriety has been a big thing for me. And those are moments when I'm like, I am not emotionally sober right now. (laughs) What I need to do something different. Yeah. You know, I think it's good to be aware of these things. And for me, it's important to not, you know, I can have this inclination to just be like, you've got X, you know, X amount of time in, in recovery. Like you shouldn't be doing this, you know, better, you know, you should have this hard schedule and you should be disciplined. And like, that's, I mean, that, for me, that's not a good thing. It's good to just have like an awareness and like, a, and a willingness to, a, a willingness to look at where I'm at and, and try to make some sort of course correction, not to fix myself, but to, to operate in alignment with, you know, who I want to be and where I want to be. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a constant progression, isn't it? It's like, I think that's one of the key things that I've really fallen comfortably into, but it wasn't easy at first. It's yeah, being willing, mindful, open to just really understanding like, what do you need in this moment? And it's definitely not a drink. What is it? And then also, you know, recognizing as your recovery progresses, you know, in your first few weeks versus the first year, the second year going on, like, your recovery is going to change and what you need might shift. And yeah, just, yeah. Open and willing is a key thing for sure. Well, I want to make sure that we, that we have time to spend in, in your recovery. Uh, I know how important it is to you and how the the growth that's taking place within it, how important that is to you. Um, so let's keep going. Uh, let's keep going with your story and let's maybe walk up to like that lot, maybe that last year before May 12th of 21, what that looked like, what sorts of things were happening and, and what brought you to that date? Right. You know, I, um, I didn't know it at the time, but I'll actually start in the 2018, 2019 time. So maybe two to three years before that. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it had been multiple years that my drinking was going into problem zone. And then, I mean, I could give lots of examples of like, uh Oh, moments, <laughs> you know, yeah. like examples of like, I, probably have a drinking problem, but I'm going to ignore that. Um, But uh, in 2019 was when there was, I would say, one of the bigger rock bottoms. And I'd already been struggling with understanding I had a drinking problem, being sober curious leading up to 2019 because of, you know, drinking to blackout a lot and, you know, injuring myself while drunk and, you know, all sorts of things that were concerning. And, and so, I think it was probably maybe even in 2018, um, I did start reading a ton of Quitlet books, which now I can see was the beginning of my recovery path. But at that time, I just saw it as I need to figure out this drinking thing. How can I stop drinking? But I don't want to let go of my drinking life. <laughs> but read, a, I did a lot of things alone, refusing to sign up for AA because my dad now is in, you know, 20 years or so sober. He's been in AA. So I'm familiar with it. And so, yeah. A lot of quit book, lit, quit, a lot of quit lit, started listening to podcasts. That's about the time I started stumbling upon RE podcast, started listening to it. In 2019, I even considered going to the Bozeman retreat, um, but there was something in me. I, I don't know if it was fear or shame, but I was just like, no, like I, it's like I was too good or like I didn't want to be a part of the community, something like felt bad about that at that time. Um, And I kicked myself because some of my closest friends now were at that 2019 Bozeman retreat and I could have met them so many years earlier. So, um, but anyways, in 2019, 
there was a Father's Day and at my, oh, I get chills even thinking about it. Um, I'm like ready to cry too, but it was Father's Day and my, uh, my husband had gone to a comedy club with some of the dad friends to celebrate. And we had a bunch of drinks on the porch. Um, and I'd had a couple girlfriends over while the dads were out and had a few drinks. And I was home alone with the kids after my friends had gone. And I ended up drinking the blackout. Um, like, you know, I think because I'd been kind of day drinking because it was like celebrating with friends and stuff. And so I blacked out on my kids who at that time were seven and 10. And my, and at that time we had either a phone or an iPad that my 10 year old could use for fun things. And he texted my husband was like, mom won't wake up. And it was their bedtime. And so of course that made my husband angry, concerned. My kids weren't happy with me at such young ages. Um, I think my son wrote something to my husband about, I like you better than mom because you don't drink like her or something like that. I mean, like it was hard stuff. So that was like definitely one of the worst rock bottoms. Um, there were definitely other ones coming up to that, but that one stood out. Um, and so sometimes soon after that, I did stop drinking. And I, at that time, I think I, I still just emotionally, mentally was not ready to accept a life without alcohol. So I was like, I'll go a hundred days and see how it goes after like not promising myself I would or wouldn't drink, but just, I'm going to go a hundred days. And so starting sometime soon after that, I did go a hundred days. Um, and then my husband, I think also had stopped drinking at that time. Can't completely remember what he was doing, but, but anyway, his birthday was in October. Um, and so that's, you know, a handful of months went over a hundred days Finally, in his birthday in October, I had convinced myself that I could moderate. You know, I, I thought that I had had enough time from alcohol. And so, you know, we both felt comfortable with it after having that break from alcohol. We we're like, all right, we'll celebrate your birthday. I'll have some drinks. And everything was fine. I could, for the most part, moderate. But, you know, within the first few weeks, even, I it was apparent to me that one or two drinks just left me wanting more. And it was starting to be kind of annoying and unfun to have just a little. and. And so it it's like I still kept it under control for the most part for quite a few months. But, you know, then hanging out with friends, I hadn't left the drinking scene. I had just been not drinking in a drinking world. And so over time, you know, you just start loosening up and you start having, you know, a drunken night here and there. And, it, and then the next thing I know, I'm starting to kind of sneak drinks when there's a drinking time, but, you know, splashing a little more wine in my glass when no one's looking or having a little pre-party drink to myself before I'm with everyone. And, and so, and it's something that I have to share. I think I shared this with Paul, <laughs> but at some point I remember listening to a podcast and around that time, and Paul had said something in the podcast about like, you know, if anyone can learn to moderate and they've figured it out, I want you to write to me. And I literally took that as a personal challenge. I'm like, I'm going to tell them, I'm going to show them, I'm going to figure it out and be like, Hey, I figured it out. I know how to moderate, <laughs> but you know, in 2021, when I stopped drinking, it was, I just had to laugh to myself. Cause I was like, yeah, he was right. <laughs> that son of a gun. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so as you can tell, I did start to drink again after a handful of months being sober in 2019. Sometime in that zone of time, I can't remember if, what year it was, but my drinking was ramping up. It was getting to a bad place again. My husband wasn't happy about it and concerned. I mean, he was still very accepting of me, but was relatively open that he didn't like it. And in a Christmas card, 
this is one of those classic examples of trying to make rules for yourself um, that you're going to follow. But then, of course, you don't because you're addicted and you can't. But in a Christmas card, I printed out. It looked really nice. Like these rules, like, okay, for this coming year, this is what I'm going to do. No more than two drinks at a time. No more than like 10 drinks a week. I can't remember all the details I gave, but it was like a good little list of like rules that I would follow. And it meant a lot to him and he'd kept it. And I really genuinely meant it. But within a few months, I totally wasn't doing that. And for a couple of years, I had just broken that promise. And so things just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And and then, but I did have luckily that classic surrender moment. And it happened to be while listening to an RE podcast, because in 2021, my drinking was just getting to a point where, well, I guess I'll tell you the surrender moment and I'll go back to what led up to it. But it was becoming very blatantly clear that I, I I think I deep down knew I needed to stop drinking, but I didn't want to accept it. And, and so I started listening to podcasts again, just to kind of explore and try to figure it out. And I remember driving to work on I-25 South, listening to an RE podcast. I have no idea who was being interviewed, but just I remember kind of putting my head back against the seat as I'm driving and just having that moment. Like, I'm like my dad, I need to stop drinking forever. And yeah, that was, that was the turning point. And, and my birthday was coming up. I'd already had one sober birthday in the years prior that really sucked. Like I went to a fancy dinner and wasn't refusing to drink, but I mean, I had to hold back tears. Like, and I was like, this is wrong. I'm like, this is my birthday. I'm trying not to drink. And yet my body is telling me that I'm having the worst time ever because I'm not drinking, even though I'm having a wonderful date with my husband. Like, what is that? So I knew like, okay, let's not like get newly sober right over my birthday. So that's why my sober birthday or my sober date is the day after my birthday. You know, I want to, I want to go back. I definitely want to touch on that, you know, that moment of clarity about that realization that that you, that you made the connection between you and your father. But before that, you know, you talked about just that, those last ditch efforts of moderation and almost having, you know, creating a mission for yourself to be like, hey, Paul, here's your letter, dude. What sorts of things were you feeling as like, as you attempted to moderate and weren't able to stay within the, you know, those guys that you had set for yourself? I think it's really important to talk about like what that does to us internally and the, and the things that we're feeling as we're all right, I'm only going to have so much or drink every so often. And then we we deviate from that. What was that doing to you on an internal level? Oh, yeah, it just felt horrible. Um, I mean, I'm a very honest, healthy person at just a, at my basic self. That's who I am. And it was like everything I'm not. And it was really annoying and frustrating and yeah, concerning. I feel like it it can create this like separation. From from our actions to ourselves, who we are, you know, and you even mentioned like sneaking a little bit more wine and like those are all versions of these. And I say this like not as judge Jen, I'm here to judge you. No, because I was doing the same shit. But I feel like it's I mean, it's these little lies that we tell ourselves and we tell the people around us. And it's it's just it's these small progressive steps that take us for me, like took me away from who I was. and. yeah, it just, it just made it like hard to look at myself. And it was it was more feel for that shame game and propel, you know, propel that drinking. It's like it's just a really tough place to be, especially when we make that promise to someone that we, that we care about, you know. 
All right. Yeah. Yeah. And especially when you make that promise and break it, that just kicks the shame up one more level than you already have. It's yeah. Yeah. And you know, like, like talking about our spouses, I, I just remembered the part in 2021 that led up to me stopping, but yeah, like my husband had stopped drinking a few months before me, not because he drank like me. He, he didn't have the problem I had, but two months or so, two to three months before I stopped, he stopped. And so then I was the only one drinking in the house. Um, only one that would be interested in bringing alcohol in the house. I mean, the only alcohol in the house left would be his like nice scotch that was up on the top shelf kind of thing. And so when he stopped drinking, that was a part of, I think, what motivated why I stopped in 2021 was because it just shined the brightest flashlight on my drinking, because that's when it kind of bumped my drinking up to hiding it more. You know, I mean, occasionally I would bring it in the house and hide it, but I think most of the time it was more like I was out and about doing what I look at as so ridiculous now, but I would like go to yoga, which was a regular thing. I've been doing yoga since before I had kids. So I've seen my yoga practice progress through before kids, during kids, being pregnant, after kids, you know, just struggling to be, to be sober, then being sober newly now being sober now and how it's such an integral part of my recovery now. So anyways, I would go to a yoga class and then would like run over to the liquor store or the Safeway, like in the parking lot where the yoga studio is and sit in my car and have a drink or two before going home because I knew I didn't want to drink at home because it would be so obvious or using the excuse of, oh, I just want some time to myself. I'm going to go, you know, just go to lunch by myself. And of course, it was really just a disguise for drinking. And my husband and you know, after I stopped drinking, admitted, like, he's like, yeah, I knew what you were doing. <laughs> so it's, so it's, it was in those last couple months leading up to that surrender moment when I was just kind of hiding it and starting to just even like sneak in one drink here, one drink there, wherever I could, just because I didn't feel comfortable drinking at home anymore. And as I would do that, I would just have that like high awareness, like this is messed up. I can't believe I'm doing this. But my body was just like, nope, you need to do this. You want to do this. And yeah. Yeah. Just kind of a, a yucky spot to be. But, you know, it's a protection. And that's, you know, one of the things that I learned when I was in rehab is that, you know, this is not, it's not a moral failing. It's just, it's not. Addiction is addiction is addiction. It's a, it's a thing. It's real. I, I don't say that to justify any of the things that we did, but just as a, understanding that it is that it, it's my belief that it is a disease that just opens the door to a little bit of empathy for for me on my end and we were you know that's protective behavior because it's doing something for us and we've got to make those steps to uh to learn how to do these things for for ourselves and not not lean so hard into that like wanting to check out or feeling like we have to and, and learning how to sit with our feelings all right you're having these realizations and you had the day where, you know, you made the correlation to between you and, and your dad and you decide like, it's time, it's time to go. Right. What did that, what did that look like? Was there like a last, a last day or was it just decided like, all right, I'm going to have my birthday and then that's it. Yeah, no, I have a very distinct last drink. Um, yeah, the, the morning after my birthday, I was a little hungover. Like, fortunately I didn't go too crazy, but over enough. I had like a hair of a dog, glass of wine in the morning. 
And it, actually that's something I skipped in my like problem drinking, but yeah, like I definitely had gotten at the end of my drinking to the point where I was having like a glass of wine in the morning in my coffee cup while getting the kids ready for school because of the hair of the dog and knowing like that's not good. Um, so I had one last one of those on my birthday uh, or sorry, the day after my birthday. And after uh, the kids were off at school, my husband was at work. Uh, I was really fortunate at that time that I had a job that was not full time. It was still like early post COVID. So working from home. So I kind of had a flexibility that day. And I took myself out to lunch that day for one last, you know, like nice glass of sparkling wine out and about. And so I had one with my lunch and it's like, I, it was like, okay, this is it. I like decided to order a second one, one last sparkling glass of wine. I have a picture of it. <laughs> and I literally documented the time of that last sip. And because I had had that, you know, I am sober app tracking for years, what my sober streaks were. And the longest one was that one in 2019. And I kept having little starts that might last a week or a month. I, we did a whole 30. I went 30 days once because a whole 30. So anyways, I like sat there having sipped my very last glass of wine. I took a, a picture of and typed in 257 May 12th, 2021. This is like my sober date and time. And so that is still in there now. Um, so that was kind of my last moment with alcohol. And yeah, I guess that answers that question. And I don't know, then I could go into what early recovery versus now looks like. I just want to acknowledge that that moment that you had, you know, like knowing the time, I think that, I think that just, that demonstrates something that it is a relationship that we have with this thing. There's when I was able to look at it that way, when I was able to see my addiction as a, as a relationship with, you know, kind of personify that addiction uh, that went a long way for me. And just that, that behavior. And I like, I don't, you're not the first person who's been on here and talked about having a moment like that. Like I know, like I vividly remember my last, my last drinks and what that was like. And yeah, it's, I mean, that just shows what it's like. It's, I don't know. There's something about like that word, calling it a relationship with alcohol. It's just, I don't know. It forces, yeah. me, forces me to look at it differently. Absolutely. Well, and yeah, in, in recovery, you hear about it a lot. Like it's almost like a, an ex. Yeah. Um, and actually my very, very first Quitlet book I picked up it might've been as early as 2017, 2018. Um, so years before I got sober, uh, what I'd have to look it up a love story with alcohol. I'd have to look it up to remember, but drinking was, a love story. Yeah. I think that was it. Um, Is that a Carolyn now oh. that sounds right. Yeah. I think that was it. So that was the very, very first one. And it, and at that time, you know, definitely a classic, you might want to ditch the booze if you Google, <laughs> you know, do you have a drinking problem? Do tests online about it. I had started doing that as early as maybe 2017. And I had stumbled upon some like forum online with people, you know, posting things. And I had just happened to read on there. Someone had recommended that book and that's how I found it. So that was my very first Quitlet book. So totally, it's like a relationship with an ex. And at the, you know, in the beginning, it was fun and awesome. And you had a great relationship, but something starts going south. And at some point you have to walk away. You have a lot of fond memories. You have some really bad memories, sometimes a ton of bad memories, and sometimes you just realize that that relationship was not good for you and you need to move on. Yeah. Break up in a public place. So yeah. I, can't make it, 
so they can't make a scene. Yeah. It's it's <laughs> bizarre, but it's... <laughs> so that was it. The last sparkling wine. Yeah. Um, with uh with the time that we've got left, we've got a bit a little bit of time. Yeah, let's talk about what that what that early recovery looked like. It sounds like you had a little bit of experience under your belt, you know, with with a few with a few stints and uh, it sounds like you had equipped yourself with some, with some knowledge through through books and podcasts. Um, what did the implementation look like? Yeah, I did it way different this time. And look at it's working. <laughs> uh, but yeah, a few weeks like when I so I had made my plan. I knew I was going to stop on May twelfth, and a few weeks before. I decided, okay, Cafe IRE, that's where I'm going to go. I need a community. I finally learned it through the podcast. I needed a community. So I actually wrote into Cafe IRE and was like, hey, do you have a lot of people or do you have people in Colorado? Because I really wanted in-person friends too. And of course, now I well know like, yep, there's a boatload of RE people in Colorado. So that really helped me feel that much more positive to sign up for RE. So on May 13th, I signed up for Cafe RE. I also listened to podcasts. Um, I actually just coincidentally on May 13th had to drive a pretty long drive south for a job visit, a site visit. And so I just binge listened to Paul's alcohol shit book, which was, you know, probably the 20th quitlet book I listened to, but I decided, okay, I'm just going to lean into it. So I got to finish that book in two days on this long drive. Um, and then I think within that week, I I um, attended the the newcomer meeting that Alan and Paul hosted, and I was really grateful for that. And one of the key things I took away from that was lean into it. You signed up for RE, now lean into it. And so I did. I I attended a ton of um, our chats online over those first few months. Well, first year, just really leaned into it. I pretty much lived and breathed recovery and leaned into it as much as I could. I connected with the RE Colorado crew pretty quickly and went for hikes very early on. One of uh, one of the friends mentioned that there was a need for good chat hosts. And so, uh, so I was like, all right, fine, sign me up. And so I, even though I was really new to being sober, I signed up to host chats um, and I just got involved as deeply as I could because I knew that it was all going to be good for me and helpful for others. And and so that's what I did in the beginning and just listening to everything. And um, and one of my key tools that I had learned from someone else was play it forward. And so, you know, I did have a handful of times, especially in that first few months where I just desperately just something would happen and it, nothing sounded better than running to the liquor store, getting some wine and just getting drunk. Um, but I, it, I, I, learn to use that tool really well in terms of playing it forward. What happens if I drink? How am I going to feel tomorrow? What happens if I don't drink and how will I feel? And every single time it got me through because it was, I didn't want to go back to that, how I would feel if I didn't drink or if I did drink. Um, so that's what it looked like in the beginning, but then, you know, progressing forward, it's, in these two plus years, it's been really interesting to watch my recovery change and shift as I needed. I I still attend a few chats a month, but it's a lot less. Um, yoga is a huge part of my recovery now. Connecting in person with some of my closest friends here in Colorado. Yeah, like that's what my recovery looks like now, but it's just, I've been very open to just 
listening to what do I need in this moment. And also, you know, the other biggest thing too, is that my book reading transition, it kind of started right before I stopped drinking with like the power of now, but it switched a lot more to like self-discovery and spiritual books and no more quit books, quit look books. And so it was much more like untethered soul and breaking the habit of being yourself and things like that. So really leaning into spiritual growth and getting into therapy more and really starting to dig into why do I have these insecurities or why do I have these like horrible feelings when I feel like someone thinks I'm stupid, you know, like it's like, where do these come from? And realizing like, oh, there's a lot of inner child stuff here. And I was fortunate enough. I never had any traumas with big T's, but you know, I can look back and I did have a lot of traumas with little T's. And I think almost everyone does. And, and so I think that it's been really critical for me to tap into my spiritual growth and have a deeper understanding of and healing of anything that kind of shaped me to make the coping decisions I made later on in life. Cause now I can see alcohol was just a symptom of these deeper things. And yeah, so now it's, yeah, working the steps, it just quickly was not about alcohol at all. And so much more about all of that. Yeah. What a blessing to be able to, again, I think, I think we maybe have even mentioned it in this episode to be able to make these observations, to finally position ourselves in a place where we can, look at what's happening with us and and make informed decisions about like why am i responding this way versus that way and and how do it how do i want to go forward what's what's in alignment with with you know my authentic self and and who i want to be i want to go quickly back to um you know you had mentioned uh, a couple things connecting with the the cafe re community going for hikes and then also like jumping into chats and if any of our listeners don't know, like our, our online community interacts with, with each other. Right. And sometimes there's these independent meetups in Colorado is notorious. They've got, you guys have such an amazing group of people out there. I, I, I know many of you and I, I love you deeply, but they'll, they'll get together and just plan things independently. It's not always a big like recovery elevator event. That's, this is not a sales pitch, but it, it might sound that way, but that's like one of the benefits of, the community is that you got, you know, groups all over can can organize these things, right? And then also you mentioned chats, and those are just like the meetings that we have. And it's just a place where people can come and check in. What I was wondering if you'd be willing to expand on is like what you expected as you were going as you were going to like one, the chats, and then two, like the hikes, any any sort of a hike, like what what your initial impression was, like what you thought it was going to be versus like what that turned into for you and like the important parts of it. Well, I, I think what I thought and hoped it would be, which it was, was having connection with people that actually understood what I've gone through and then being able to laugh about the ridiculous things that we did to hide our drinking or the stupid things we did while drinking or the really unhealthy things, but be able to just be understood by other people and understand them and not feel any shame about it. Um, because, you know, my husband who has been loving and supportive, he just didn't understand the struggle I had and the thing, the stupid things I did, you know, sometimes even behind his back, like hiding it from him. Um, and so it was just really comforting to be around people that got it. And uh, I think the thing I wasn't expecting, I was hoping to make friends but the the quality and the vulnerable, close, open friendships that I've gained out of it, it's 
that is something that I think maybe secretly I really hoped for, but I didn't think would be as awesome as it is. And it's definitely far outweighs any of my friends that were just drinking buddies only. Yeah. I just, um, I just saw, I think it was within the last week. Didn't you, you had a picture posted <laughs> with two of your friends who happened to be two of, uh, two of my favorite people as well. To people yeah. that, I'm, that I'm close with and care about very deeply. What are these? What do these friendships in in recovery look like? And like, I I know the answer to this, but so do you guys just sit around and talk about that last sip of sparkling wine all day? Is this is this what you're? Is this what we talk about with our relationships and in sobriety? Not at all. I mean, not now. Not you know, because all of us are. Um, you know, like one of those two friends stopped drinking just a little bit before me. So we're similar in sobriety around, you know, a little over two years. And then one is I think a little over three years. Um, yeah. And we're, so we're deeper into it now and no, it's about talking about how we're doing and, you know, it's like, we might not be doing well and being able to just listen to each other, have empathy and just give support and love. Or it might be that we're really happy and excited um, or we're struggling in a relationship or having, you know, whatever it is, it's just open, vulnerable, deep um, conversations about true feelings, emotions, struggles, wins, it's like, it's like real deep friendships and supportive and lots of empathy. And, and yeah. And then once in a while, it might be like, Oh, I had this moment where I just, you know, like on a walk we had like that night, you know, from where I took a picture, it's like, we were talking about how, you know, we still get in these like beautiful weather days, you know, it's like, Oh, just like that, you know, like, glistening glass of wine, cold wine, sitting out on a patio, like how nice does that sound? But my God, it's so not worth it anymore. You know, like sparkling water is so much better. So, um, so yeah, just everything like that. Yeah. I love it. It's a, it's great to be able to find these people that we can do life with and we can just we share what we're going through in the day and keep those conversations open. If we, if we ever do have those moments, those, those, you know, it still it still happens. I mean, not a, not a lot less than it did before, but it, like it still happens, right? These the romanticizing or that euphoric recall of what it might have been like, or just a, like a a tough a tough time in in our lives. But to be able to have those friends that we can call upon, and they they know our past, and they know some of the ways that we used to deal with stuff, and they can help us walk through that. Right. Well, and and having that openness and freedom to be able to reach out when, you know, any of us are having a bout of depression, anxiety, just falling into a funk for some reason, you don't even know whatever it is, just not feeling emotionally sober, just being able to reach out and be like, Oh, I'm having this. And, and to just feel understood and have someone there to just listen and care. And yeah, it's huge. And it's like a way healthier way to cope with those hard things than picking up a glass of whatever and, and drinking alone. Yeah. One of my favorite things about, uh, about recovery people in the, I mean, this is a generalization, right? But is I've met more people in recovery who have the ability to sit with me when I'm uncomfortable rather than like try to pull me out of it. And it's like, it's natural to be, you know, if you walk up on someone and they're crying or upset about something, it's natural to try to soothe them and calm them down. And cause it's, it's uncomfortable, but I don't know. I feel like recovery folks have this ability to just like let you express it, like to let you have those feelings 
and not try to tell you like, oh, come on, just smile. Like, it's going to be okay. Like, I don't need to be pacified right now. Yeah. Like, I got to get this out <laughs> so I can go, so I can get through it. And they just, I love them. I love them for that. Is that they'll just sit there and be like, oh, yeah, he or she, they're just breaking down right now. Hold on a second. They'll, they'll be fine. Yeah. Well, and you know, what's really hard though is yes, absolutely. I'm a hundred percent with you. And I feel like I now have a really good ability to do that with almost everyone. And the one person that it's hardest with is my husband. It's like, <laughs> it's, and, and he and I are working on, I mean, he and I both have things to work on and, you know, something I didn't even say, but like, after I was one year, so we were both one year sober, we actually had a separation for, you know, a handful of months and it was a hard time, but it's like, we have such hard things to work through because we've been together so long and have so many like, you know, childhood based things that we brought into a marriage when we were super young, that it's like so hard to pull out of these old reactions and responses and feelings. And, and so we're really fortunate that we both have been able to work on ourselves and get out of it, but it's just amazing that I can have so much empathy and understanding and patience for everyone, <laughs> but him. And so, I mean, we're, we're getting better and better, but it's, it's amazing that it's, yeah. So I'm, I'm thankful we're back together and that's a whole nother hour probably, but yeah. That's, so. that's going to be episode two. Right. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, besides our, you be like, besides our parents are like, our a lot of times our spouses, that's like our, for me, I've been with my wife as long as I was at home, as long as I was a child at home, you know? So she's about to lap my folks as far as time spent together and we we have a lot of conditioned responses and it take it takes time to adjust that but yeah conditioned responses yep that's the right term yeah they've been built over time and sometimes it takes a little time to to recondition yes jen we have hauled butt through the last hour and we are at the rapid fire round in 30 to 60 seconds. I'm going to ask you to answer each of these questions. Sister, are you ready? I sure am. All right. Number one, what was your biggest fear as you were thinking about quitting drinking? Mm, that I would have no friends and I would be perceived as boring and I would be bored. Pretty typical response. Yeah. Uh, what is a positive that you didn't expect in a life without alcohol? That I can actually have way more fun and way higher quality friendships being sober than I ever could when I was drinking. Amen. What is your go-to alcohol-free drink? I have two, depending on my mood. Um, and these are kind of the celebratory. If it's like a barbecue or camping, the Lagunitas Hoppy Refresher is oh, nice too. Very solid. I love that one. And when I'm feeling fancy, because I loved wine and sparkling wine, um, I love like in a wine glass, no ice, club soda with a few drops of bitters. It just, I like the taste and it's really simple and clean. And yes, yeah, so that's that's my fancy drink. Club soda bitters. Yeah, if you really want to get fancy, add like a lime or orange sliver to it. See bougie. Yeah. Uh, uh, what is your plan in sobriety moving forward? Yeah, going into this third year, like I said, yoga is a huge part of it. Um, and just, just working on 
my spiritual practice and self-discovery. Um, you know, one of the books that I, the breaking the habit of being yourself, like I've really started to learn that I do have control over my perceptions of things. And while I don't have emotion, emotional control, it, you know, emotions just come up. What can I do with it? Or sitting with something, learning from hard things. Um, and yeah, just, just really leaning into mindfulness, spirituality, um, and awareness and health a lot more. I love it. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are early in their recovery or thinking about getting sober? I would say the whole play it forward thing by far is such a good tool. It's just been solid and it's the one tool that has never wavered or changed in terms of my go-to um, early or deeper into sobriety. And just be open to let your let your recovery path and journey take its own course. Um, yeah, even if you're resistant to AA, check it out. Or if you really don't want to do it, 12 steps can be done with a variety of different types of ways. Like there's the woman's way through the 12 steps, which is, you know, a, a chat that we've started in RE. That's an amazing book. Um, check out Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families. Like ACA is a 12-step group. And a lot of us have issues where ACA may even be a better fit than AA or you know, so just keep your mind really open and explore and try all sorts of new things to see what works for your recovery and be open to it changing. I love that. I'm a big, uh, I'm a big 12 step proponent. And I think we live in a beautiful time where there's a lot of ways, uh, a lot of ways that we can do that. That's, it's just, it looks different than, than what we think, or, you know, it's, it's more than than the dingy basement. I mean, sometimes it is a dingy basement too, which is, I mean, those I've had some really cool experiences there, but yeah, I just, sorry, these are your questions, not mine, but I think it's important, you know, if we go to a meeting and it's not for us, that's okay. Yeah. Cause, there, Cause there's more and right. maybe it's, maybe it's online. Maybe it's a, a different group. Maybe it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. And we, we didn't talk about, I mean, community by far is first, like the most important thing, but I think you know, I didn't start the 12 steps till I was about three months sober. I was kind of resistant. But the one thing I found is like the friends I was making RE that had the sobriety I admired the most. The one thing they had in common was they'd done the steps. And I was like, there's got to be something to this step thing. <laughs> and so that's what motivated me. And after having done it, I learned so much about myself. I feel like I'm a better person, a better spouse, a better mother, a better friend. I'm just, I'm so grateful I did it. So yeah. I, I do recommend it. It is a, a great set of tools. Um, and Jen, last, but certainly not least, <laughs> can you give listeners you fit your favorite, you might want to ditch the booze if line. Yeah, it was hard to pick which one, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I actually went to the dentist this week and I, this is when I got the thought, if you find yourself in that dentist chair for your six month cleaning over and over and over again, thinking next time I will not binge drink the night before a dentist appointment because I'm pretty sure they can smell it on me or see something in my mouth about it and you're feeling really uncomfortable, that's when you might want to ditch the booze. And as a side note, I actually asked the dental hygienist this week, I'm like, can you tell if people have been drinking a lot? And she said, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes the obvious, you can smell it seeping off someone, but she said, you know, when people fall asleep drunk, they sleep with their mouth open. And, and I think like 
the gums get kind of white or something. Oh. <laughs> Hopefully that's not too gross. <laughs> God bless our dental uh, dental <laughs> workers. Yeah. Um, Jan, I just want to thank you for your time uh, and for your vulnerability. It's been amazing sitting with you. Uh, and I appreciate you. Yeah, I appreciate you too. And Ari, like, I'm just, I'm so grateful for you, Paul, who started this and just our whole community. It's, it's awesome. We are the lucky ones, right? Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, sister. Yeah. Thank you. Recovery Elevator. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Jan, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people today. The week before school started for our kids, we took a family trip up to Winnipeg. My kids had never been to Canada, so we ordered their passports and started making reservations. Depending on your style, you'd either love me or hate me when it comes to vacationing. When I do it my way, I get itineraries for each day. I'm looking up restaurant reviews for the areas that we're going to be in. I'm looking at Google Street View so I know what it's going to look like when we need to make a left turn. I know which exhibits we should go see. It's a bit over the top, but it brings me a little bit of peace. We've done some family trips that have been a little too overwhelming for everyone. This time, I thought I would do it a little bit different and I would slow down. I didn't have the hard itinerary, but I still did all the research because I couldn't help myself. I had ideas of what we could do, but I was trying to leave it up to my family to decide. I kept getting frustrated though because I felt like they didn't care about anything. On our third day there, I finally confided in my wife. I told her, I'm upset right now. We've spent a bunch of money to expedite these passports. We picked an expensive hotel downtown so we could be close to everything. We have all these options, and I feel like nobody cares. I am sick of having to make the decisions. She gave me a funny look, kind of smiled, and said, Chris, that's not how we feel at all. We thought that you wanted to plan the whole trip. It's not that we don't care. It's that we trust you, and we feel safe with you saying what we're going to do. What I perceived as my family not caring was their comfort. They knew that I would plan the trip. Meanwhile, in my head, I was thinking, I'm going to be so relaxed, it's going to be great, but it wasn't. It did end up being a good trip. We laughed and we learned from this. For our next trip, we're going to try to make it clear over who should plan what days, and if we're going to have chill days... Maybe I'll put that on the agenda too, but most of all, we're going to continue to communicate. I'm probably never going to get it perfect. Neither is my family, neither are my coworkers, neither are all the people around me. But if we slow down and we have a conversation, we have a much better chance of a positive outcome. We're the only ones that can do this, RE, but we don't have to do it alone. I love you guys.